Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Critical Thinking, a Critical Role Rewatch podcast. Say that five times fast. No. Okay. Well, uh, well, we are basically well, what I just said on the tin. We are a rewatch podcast. We're gonna we're uh, watching Critical Role, and then we're going to uh, retell it in much less time with a bit of a spin on it. Um, we're gonna basically be talking about the story from a literary standpoint, analyzing it as if it were a D and D book, uh, as we were just talking about before we went live. They're notorious low quality. Um, or as if it was any sort of novel or screenplay or, or stage production or anything like that. Um, just sort of seeing, looking at the actors that, uh, the, the choices that the actors have made and seeing if, you know, if we were writing this story, would we have made the same decisions? Was it good? Did it pan out? Did it, was it bad? Etc. Um, for all of the literary nerds that we know watch Critical Role. But before we begin, first, we must know who the fuck are we? And why the fuck should you listen to us? Well, going around the room, we're going to start with uh, Jeremy. Who the fuck are you and why the fuck should they listen to you? I, I am Jeremy Thomas. I am a editor for 411mania.com. I do television show reviews, uh, movie reviews. Um, I have a fair amount of experience looking at uh, narrative projects uh, critically and analysis, and I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons for 34 years now, I want to say. Show off. Um, and other role-playing <laughs> games throughout as well. Right. Jack, same question. Uh, I'm Jack Gregory. I have been uh, engaged in the field of creative writing for going on 20 years now. Um, I've been a avid D&D and all things tabletop RPG fan for probably about the same period of time. And it's been a, a very long-standing habit of mine to analyze things as literature, whether or not they're presented that way in the first place. So, yeah, I've been writing uh, screenplays, short stories, poetry, a few novel-length manuscripts, that sort of thing, and this is pretty much what I do. So that's why. Um, as for me, I'm John Bates. I'm the co-founder of Final Show Films, uh, and I have been a performing actor, uh, a working actor, for the past 14 years, uh, analyzing scripts of, of a wide variety, both stage and screen, because that's what you have to do as an actor. Um, I am a professional voice actor as well, um, and I've been engaged in creative writing, and in creative writing we, air, we heavily air quotes as teenage fan fiction and uh, DM campaigns for D&D uh, since for, for quite a long time. Uh, for, for quite a long time, I've written Definitely numerous does. stories uh, and campaigns since uh, my early teens, which uh, was a lot sooner than these two uh, fine gentlemen, but still... Um, uh, been uh, roughly 20 years now uh, that I've been writing stuff. Actually, that was about the, uh, even sooner than my early teens. That was preteen. I was writing things. So, yeah, almost 20 years. Um, and, of course, being an actor, I went to school for film uh, and have three years of screenwriting classes pounded into my brain, uh, which, you know, screenwriting and screenwriting analysis. Uh, and I am also a published columnist 
on the very same website that Jeremy edits. So word that too. So we, what we're saying is we're a number of nerdy people that have an interest in literature and writing and analyzing said writing. So plus if you consider the collective uh, historical experience of everybody sitting around these microphones, it's adds up to one person in a nursing home. Really? Hmm. I mean, almost 100 years of experience between the three of us, yeah. True. Um, also, uh, so to get onto the subject at hand, we're talking about Critical Role, which is a web-based uh, uh, live stream in which a bunch of nerdy-ass voice actors play D&D, as said by their GM at the beginning of every episode. Um, and uh, we've been... Uh, We've all currently caught up. We've watched the entirety of the show ourselves in our private time. Um, and we felt that it was something that would, you know, as with all art, there eventually have to be art critics. And we decided that we have just the right size of stick up our asses to do just that. Uh, so uh, <laughs> that's what we're here to do. Oh, yeah. So. Starting at the beginning, we're starting with uh, with Arrival at Craghammer, and just as an idea, we're kind of building this as we go, building the bridge as we walk across it, so the format may change, but as of right now, we're basically going to do a quick uh, synopsis of the episode, with me acting as host, that's me doing the synopsis, and sort of riffing off things as we come to it. So to start off, to start with uh, the very first episode, we the opens up with a series of introductions to the characters. Um, and this is a very sort of in-media res style of introductions. We are presented with a face, a name, and a bit of a backstory. Um, almost a Shakespearean style of, of this is me and who I am. Uh, which prompted a lot of Shakespeare's old works, as a matter of fact, if you ever watched any of them live, not not live at the time of Shakespeare, but live in theater on Broadway or in shows, uh, a lot of his older works prefaced all of their stuff with, who are these people we're about to talk to? Often they had, often he had, a, Greek, he had a Greek chorus come out and explain, uh, you know, Classically, in Romeo and Juliet, uh, they had a Greek chorus come out and explain the fact that this is Romeo and Juliet. They're star-crossed lovers, and they're going to die. Here's the story. Uh, you know, um, extrapolated out a bit, they open up with our cast of characters, who is uh, Tiberius Stormwind, uh, played by Ryan Akaba, uh, Vexalia, um, Vexalia and Vaxildon, the twin elves, played by, by Laura Bailey and Liam O'Brien, Jeremy, can you say Percy's full name? <laughs> Percival Frederickstein von Musil Kalowski de Rolla III. Played by Talzin Jaffe. Uh, Keyleth, played by Marisha Ray. Scanlan Shorthall, played by Sam Regal. And Grog, played by Travis Willingham. Uh, so, do you guys have anything in particular you want to talk about about their backstories before we get into them, or just want to jump straight into... Well, I mean, like, for me, what it felt are. a lot like, and I don't know if uh, you guys have experienced this as much recently, but I remember a lot of fantasy novels would start mm -hmm. with a cast of characters. You know, it's like three pages before you even get to the first chapter, and they're, you know, it's a name, little blurb, you know, and, and that way you've got this reference back and forth. I like what they've done here, being that they give you a little bit of actual narrative backstory, but even from these just basic intro introductions, you start to establish a theme of what each character's main attributes and personality aspects are, which 
on a, a story of this nature, I think, is effective. Especially since we are doing this Star Wars style, literally jumping right into the action as soon as the narrative starts. So the background there is helpful. It's just whether or not it's going to change over time, I think, will may become an issue. Because characters do change. So yeah. the same introduction over a long period of time, eh, risky, risky maneuver there, I would say. So I was looking when when I was doing my rewatch for this uh, this week for the episode. Um, a couple things immediately stuck out at me about the way that it starts and sort of extends to the episode as a whole, but and particularly the prologue. Um, and this might not be the, the 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 most positive for some people, but it's something that I kind of like. I saw two comparisons immediately stick out to me, which are. Um, the intros function, function sort of like the opening to Suicide Squad, um, which came out just, just six months ago, um, where it starts off and it spends a lot of, it, it spends time looking at these characters from their perspectives, uh, looking at, looking at sort of their histories and not, not going like really in depth, gives, you know, sort of an idea of where they're coming from. Um, and sort of uh, going off what, what Jack was saying about about fantasy novels, my other point of comparison is probably the best of the Dungeons and Dragons novels. I think is pretty universally accepted is the uh, Dragonlance books. Mm-hmm. Um, the the way that uh, Dragons of Autumn Tw- Autumn Twilight was that the first one? I think so. Yeah. Um, the way that one starts is with these characters who have known each other for a very long time. Um, sort of getting back together, and obviously here you have these characters who are already together, but getting back together in a social situation, which is sort of how this one starts with them entering Craig Hammer and going into so, uh, and I think that it really works on that level, um, uh, very well. Yep. Yeah, and the so, subjectivity of the intro I think is also important to note because this is mm-hmm. a first-person description, more or less, yes. of each of the characters. You know, you're not yeah. getting an objective viewpoint of Vaxildan; you're getting Vaxildan's viewpoint of Vaxildan. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so to begin, we get uh, we open up. I'm not. Uh, I think Grog is always the first. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not necessarily going to go in order of the introduction because I don't remember what the order was. Uh, but we'll start with Grog. The first person we hear from is Grog Strongjaw, and these are all voiced by their voice actors. Uh, and he gets straight to the point with, right, listen up, if you have ale, you have a friend in Grog Strongjaw. And he goes on to talk about uh, his, a little bit about his backstory. I think he probably has the shortest of the group. Probably. Um, That's fair. And he, talk, he, he, he basically introduces himself as Grog Wood. Uh, Grog is a barbarian. He once traveled with a tribe. He likes fighting, drinking, and ladies. Um, he's very close friends with Pike, their gnome cleric, uh, who saved him when he was abandoned by his tribe for having the audacity to not be a genocidal raging man 100% of the time. Um, and, uh sort of built a relationship with Pike and eventually found these other people and built a relationship also with Scanlan, who takes him to brothels every once in a while and pays. So, and, and that's pretty much Grog in a nutshell, I find. I, I feel like it was accurate to him. Um, it's a very good way to start 
uh, a story because you're starting with this sort of funny character, but inherently in the fact that he is a barbarian, mm-hmm. um, you know that while he can be funny because he has low intelligence, um, he can also be very, very deadly, serious, and threatening. Um, which sort of sets the tone, I feel, very nicely for the story. Yeah, um, him they, being they start first. off with one of their simpler characters. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then, you know, and they... And Grog's complexity, of course, comes out eventually. But yeah, they, they start yep. you off with, with something that you're comfortable with, that you recognize, you know? Yeah, uh, I don't absolutely. know. Uh, now, do you guys know who typically comes next after Grog? Keyleth. Keyleth. Keyleth? All right, so then we learn about Keyleth, voiced by Marisha Ray. Uh, now, Keyleth's is a bit is quite a bit longer than Grog's, and is also a lot more introspective than anyone else. She yes. is very much sort of, uh, I am not exactly what you first see. Very, I found her introduction to be very uh, teenage girl writing in a journal. Yes, uh, which fits. Uh, her character. Uh, oh, very th- much so, yes. It opens up with the line, At first impression, Keyleth would leave you with little information on the half-elven druid. But if you look further, you'll find this, that, and that. And she goes on about how uh, she's a very socially awkward person. She's very shy. Um, she is part of a druid tribe uh, known as the Ashari. Um, and she is going on a journey. She, she, she opens up with the fact that, of all the people, she has a personal quest that she is seeking out to to uh, fil- fulfill called the Aramente, which is a sort of a tribalist uh, rite of passage that she has to go undergo in order to lead her tribe of the of the Arashari. And it ends with a note of, um, you know, questioning if she's even worthy of this honor of doing the Aramente. Mm-hmm. Um, so going from Grog, who's very simple, very straightforward, very comedic, to this slightly more... I don't want to say self-involved, but definitely more introspective character uh, with a little bit more of a complex backstory. So it was interesting because it's a nice transition in tone because there's there's still a lot of, um, at least early on in her, her, her intro, there's still a lot of humor. Um, there's the, the pee your pants line and there's the uh, if, if kittens can be considered... Uh, beasts and and things like that, and throughout the course of the of her intro, it becomes far more introspective and serious. To all the way up to the last line, uh, uh, her thought is 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 she even worthy? Which makes a nice move into the next ones that come. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was very nice tonal shift. I felt. Yeah, and. As you look at all the introductions as a whole, they do a very good job of arrangement, I would say. It's it's a very effective uh, sequence in that they don't hit the thematically similar characters, boom, 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 all in a row. They mix it up just enough to keep the audience interested but not apathetic. Right. Yeah. Uh, I do, I, I do want to point out, though, um, Keyless is probably my second least favorite of the of the bunch just because i i've written characters like that and that type of character that's very self-involved um and very wishy-washy is just not a character type that i appreciate Mm -hmm. not to say i don't appreciate keyleth as a character but that 
type that and and that's that's the, that's our first impression of Keyleth is this type of character mm-hmm. which quickly gets changed as we go through the first episode but as a first impression not one of my favorites oh see she's Keyleth and that Keyleth is I want to say really close to my favorite if not my favorite well, I'm, um, like, I'm, I'm not referring to, like, favorite character overall, just in the intro, of the intros. Same thing with the intro, too, because I, I really, I've written a lot of characters like that, too. Um, or at least, at least played a lot of characters like that. And there there's a level of self-involvement there, but there's also, I really like those characters who ha- who have a lot of self-doubt to them. Because it's inter- I'm I'm immediately interested in seeing okay where is this character going to go as a viable character going forward because you have to assume when you're starting off that the archetypes that you're immediately seeing are going to become viable yeah um, and so it's always really interesting to me like immediately like okay where is this character going to go and and what kind of arc is are are they going to go on and so that really appealed to me with that intro. See, I'm kind of actually a yet another third path because I don't play characters like this. Keyleth is the repressed homeschooler without too much uh, real-world practical knowledge and application suffering from crippling self-doubt. I don't need to play characters like that because that was my childhood. (laughs) So it's interesting to me to see this then represented in a fictional standpoint and look at the choices then that the character makes because I don't play characters like this but watching somebody else do so and making the sort of changes and choices associated with that kind of backstory is very compelling to me but then again I understand that that's a completely subjective opinion given my background yeah yeah all right uh, who's next? Percy. You know? Percy. Percy, uh, who's sort of uh, the emo goth of the group. Um, I say sort of, definitely the emo goth of the group. Uh, he opens up talking with a very posh British accent, um, which uh, Talison does so very well. Um, with a little bit more of a biographical feel to it, where he, he comes out with, the the opening line is, uh, Percy was a third child of seven children, born to a noble family who lived far to the north in the ancient castle of Whitestone. Uh, it's very sort of, I am writing down my biography. Uh, whereas the previous two felt very personal journal or uh, exclamation to a person standing in front of you. Uh, this one is very, I'm reading from a book. And also fits the character very well. That, 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 very bookish uh this is an authority uh this is this is a statement of authority as opposed to a personal account um and he details how uh, in his youth a mysterious couple known as the briarwoods came to court and then violently took over his family's castle exiling him or you know uh, ejecting him and his sister uh whom he you know assumes is dead because the last time he saw her she had an arrow in her back um, and he sort of fled, uh, and, uh, we get a little bit of the sinister sort of darkness to him because, um, he ends it telling about how one night in a dream, a cloud of smoke told him you can take revenge against, you can take vengeance against all those who have wronged you. Here's how. And he built his first gun because Percy is our gunslinger. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Percy's is my favorite of the of the of the series yeah. of of the series of intros, mostly because it has a complete character arc within the intro. It start you know he starts at a place of of wealth and breeding and power, and then he continues on his normal life. Uh, something new is introduced. And then that new thing immediately wrecks his day. He goes down to the depths of despair and then begins to climb back out with a plan. And of all of them, I think, I think he's the only intro that actually has this sort of self-contained character arc in it. Which I find fascinating and very telling of his character. Yeah, no, and... Percy's has always been my favorite intro as well. Um, not only for the the narrative structure of it, you know, the story within a story already, um, where you see that development of time, but he's a he's a trope that I'm sure we've all run across before. The dispossessed noble out to reclaim and get vengeance on the people who dispossessed yeah. him in the first place. But the way Taliesin has structured the narrative it doesn't feel remixed it doesn't feel like it's something that we've seen over and over and over again uh, there's just enough new tweaks on the story um, and there are so many fantastic hooks that when you know I mean he sees his sister shot but like we all know Unless there's a body, you can't guarantee that a character's dead. You know, um, you know, we've got names for these people that are still in power, as far as we know, but that he's planning on eventually taking down. We've got this uh, strange ethereal presence that sort of fuels his vengeance and sets him on the path <laughs> that we know almost nothing about. Well, we're definitely going to have to explore that at some point. You know, and just the the sheer number of character hooks with that self-contained narrative arc already—it's just—it's fantastic to me. He builds characters the same way I do. He takes a series yeah. of plot hooks and then ties them to a body. <laughs> Pretty much. And yes, he does it. He does it through tragedy, and that's Keyleth is one of my favorite of the intros. But yes, I'm I'm with you guys. Percy is uh, is easily my top because. Again, it, 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 it's an it's a character trope and, a, and an archetype that when you hear it and you hear tragedy strike, you're like, "Ooh, this guy, this one's gonna be fun to watch." Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, creating those kinds of uh, characters that have, you know, obviously these guys, we know right off the bat, these guys are going to be the the protagonists of our story just because we know that the Dungeons and Dragons, you know, story and so on. But this is a character who has a really, really, not only a tragedy, but a really dark sort of um, a twist in there. And so it's an immediate appeal of, okay, how are, how are these two going to interplay against each other? And what kind of interesting character development is going to come out of that? Yep. Um, we have, we, we, I've just realized that we are... 10 minutes in and have not gotten through the entirety of the cast intro. So we're going to speed this up. Um, so who's next in the list? Scanlan. Scanlan Shorthall. Um, Scanlan is my second favorite intro because it is, Oh, you haven't heard of Scanlan Shorthall. The opening line 
is a line loaded with character, and it continues on. Uh, well, gird your loins, ladies, because he has his eye on you. Uh, so Scanlan's the bard of the group, and not only is he is a stereotypical classical bard. Lover, dancer, singer, fighter, magician. Um, he goes on to... He, he, he opens up with this... Uh, this basically, ladies, you have basically no choice but to fall into the arms and lap of this uh, gnome, of this halfling, because... Uh, no, no. Sorry, gnome. He's an, he's oh, gnome. gnome, not halfling. Yep. <clears throat> yep. Of this poor gnome, because not only is he devilishly handsome and charming, he also has a suitably tragic backstory, which he then immediately goes into, talking about how he was born poor, and you know, basically the only thing that he had available to him was his wits and charm, which he used uh, to join Dr. Dranzel's spectacular traveling troop, which he used to rise out of poverty, um, and hone his skills to become a bard extraordinaire. Um, talks about how he's a lone wolf. He's sort of the, the loner, never really one for a group, even though he relies on groups exclusively. Um, it's a very self-puffing, uh, uh, self-fluffing uh, story of oneself, which, again, very perfectly in character, and I just love the 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 skeevy charisma in this opening act. Well, I'm going was... to have to disagree with you there, actually. Scanlan <laughs> is my least favorite of the intros. Really? Yep. Yes. Yep. Um, no, as far as that goes, I mean, yes, I can't I can't say that you, he doesn't characterize it well, but Scanlan's intro, as fantastic as the actual <laughs> character in play is, always struck me as a very sort of one-note repetition kind of introduction. Um, we, we get the vaguest hints at this sort of latent protective instinct when he's talking about his mother, but honestly, he is the, the counterpoint on the same spectrum of Keyleth, where Keyleth is introspective, Scanlan is self-obsessed, um, and, and I feel like a lot of time through the narr- the, the introduction narrative, he just keeps hitting that note. <laughs> over and over and over again. I would love to see a little more variety and a little more dimensionality to Scanlan's introduction, if that was a note that I was going to give to Sam Regal. (laughs) So there's a couple things with it that make it my least favorite. Uh, One is, yes, I I, I agree with Jack. It is very one note. Um, I think it's a really jarring shift uh, tonally from the previous. It's the one that I don't think is placed particularly well. I think Scanlon's probably would have been good as a closer because it brings it back up to a more jovial sort of tone. Um, Coming directly after Percy's, it's a little bit off. And yeah, I just... It was the character that, that as, as you watched through it the first time, I was just least excited about. That's interesting. Uh, and, uh, and it might be the fact that where it's placed that, that made me like it more. Um, mostly because it's a very absurdist character. Mm-hmm. Um, I say, I said character. It's more of a caricature. Um, it's a, it's a very, it's very much a, a, an absurd idea. And placing it right after this very relatable air quotes relatable um character of percy who like we can understand everything he's going through and understand his perspective going immediately to a very absurd character that we can't really understand because who would um 
I find to be amusing and very sort of uh, jarring in a good way, uh, which definitely, you know, is a matter of taste. And I, I certainly understand where you guys are coming from. It is very one note. Um, it is very self-absorbed. And at the same time, it's, again, the character is just sort of slapped in your face. And I find that when you're just, when you're just, when you are establishing character, this of course coming from a theater background, mm-hmm. um, when you, when you establishing character, it's better to slap in the face than to waft past like a, like a silent fart. Yeah. That's fair. Um, and that, again, that's from my theater perspective. Though, mm-hmm. So that, that's a, a different viewpoint. Um, next is Tiberius, isn't it? Yes. Yes, which and I Tiberius. think I think well, in terms of flow, they should have flipped Tiberius and Scanlan. They should have had Tiberius after Percy and then Scanlan yeah. to keep the flow a little more manageable. But yeah. Ti- Tiberius is the longest intro. <laughs> um, it is not only the longest intro; it is the most verbose and self-aggrandizing of the intros, mm-hmm. which again perfectly fits Tiberius. <laughs> um, so we learn about Tiberius. Yeah. A- a, a dragonborn sorcerer of some apparent nobility, um, hailing from the land of Draconia, where dragonborn come from, apparently. Um, it spends the first half of the... It spends the first half of the intro talking about how powerful a sorcerer he is, having oh, having succeeded in joining the sorcerers right at the mere age of 15, uh, and about how his goal and his desire is to become a master of magic. And then... Uh, because as a member of uh, the uh, uh, Magic Guild in Draconia, he didn't do anything, he grew bored. And because he grew bored, he set out for adventure. But he is the mad genius who sees this legendary promise of magic artifacts that nobody else believes exist as being true. And so he sets up our second, uh, third, actually, sorry, our third actual in-character quest... Mm-hmm. that we have. So the first one was Keyleth with her Armente. The second one is Percy with his vengeance. The third one is Tiberius who's seeking these magical artifacts and will he find them? He's already found a few but uh, will he find the rest? Um, he's kind of middling on me. I find that the self-aggrandizing overly verbose character to be annoying more than anything else. I mean it's a character start or it's a it's an intro description that really works because you get a very strong, almost more than um, some of the others, you get such a strong sense of what his character is. The question is whether that character is appealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wasn't impressed. When I first started watching the series, Tiberius, I honestly learned more about the character from the voice Orion Akaba created for the character than the actual intro itself. Yeah. And the intro filled in a couple blanks, but as soon as Orion opens his mouth and starts talking, you get that sort of, you know, half-bluffing, very self-important, very arrogant character. And that whole pursuit of knowledge and power thing almost feels tacked on at times. So yeah. It does. Not one of my favorites. I find that actually he's very good to juxtapose against Percy. 
where Percy is a noble by birth and uh, perhaps noble by uh, by intent, um, Tiberius is an aristocrat. Mm-hmm. And all that entails. Right. Like, sort of the, the nobility inherent, and you should obviously be able to see how aristocratic I am by the way I talk and the way I bear myself and the fact that I am so very much more smart than most people. Um... And and that's a character choice, and and um, you know he's a he's a character who had a very low wisdom, as we come to find out, because he doesn't have that sort of common sense, and it, it, it's very in keeping. It's just not a character I like because I've met those people in real life, and they really are like that. Yeah, I feel like I feel like Tiberius is a noble with uh, just a shit ton more privilege than Percy is. Yeah, like, he's definitely riding the privilege train. Yeah. Um, So, uh, that's Tiberius. Then next we go to Vexalia and Vaxeldon. Vax comes first, Vex comes last. Vex closes it out. I know Vex closes it out because Vex closes them all out. Um, (laughs) uh, So Vax Vax and Vex are... We're going to do both of them together because they're twins. And they deserve to be together. Their stories tie into one another. Uh, We learn about them. uh, They... I find that their stories are a bit redundant and they could have probably actually just melded the two of them together mm-hmm. um, because there's very little difference between their between their intros other than some character stuff we get. Um, they're both uh, lived with their with their uh, human mother from a very young age. They're both half elves. Um, they were taken from their mother. Um, the, the The opening line is never entirely welcome in the company of elves or man or men. Uh, Vaxeldon learned at a young age to skip past formality, preferring instead to invite himself in your door. Um, Which, you know, is a very very good character piece, but basically they never really felt at home amongst their mother's human uh, uh, company, or once they were taken to their father's uh, elven kingdom amongst their father's elven kind. And in fact, their father was very much the sort of I'm taking you because you are heirs more than anything else Mm -hmm. type of person, and we get that in both of their stories. Um... They left. They just sort of, you know what? Screw this noise. We're out. Um, finding their own way. Um, but when they tried to go back to their mother, they found that their mother had been killed, tragically, because no, no uh, player character can have surviving parents. Of course not. Um, except Tiberius. Uh, <laughs> which is another part of his sort of player character privilege, I think. He has parents. Keyleth has one. Parents that, parents that care about him. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, uh, they find their mother's dead, killed by a dragon, uh, and the two of them react very differently to that. Uh, Vax reacts to that by holding what he has more dear, and Vex reacts to that by wanting to kill all dragons in existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it sort of sparks their two different ways of Vex becoming a ranger, Vax becoming a rogue. Yeah. Um... Definitely higher up for me than the other two because there's a lot of character and also a lot of information in here. Mm-hmm. You see two different sides of the same story. I definitely feel it would have been better served time-wise um, and redundancy-wise by meshing the two together. Yeah. yeah. But, I'm, but like, I don't yeah. disagree. Yeah, no. And the, the, the compare and contrast nature of the two stories is something that I like a lot about it. Um, and you get to see those varying responses because they are twins, but they're not identical. And, yeah. you know, whereas Vax hits more on the sort of 
bitter bitterness that he holds in his heart, the impulsive nature of his personality, whereas Vex goes more on just the the solitaire the solitary nature of her existence, the daddy issues, the watchfulness, the loneliness, you know. And there's this weird juxtaposition of two siblings having had a very common experience growing up, but they both diverge from it in their own unique ways. Yeah, and I feel like that would have been better served Mm -hmm. with them playing off each other because we would have also gotten their relationship with each other. That's the one thing that these intros lack is what they're like together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Honestly, Grog probably hits that more than anybody when he's yep. talking about you know his his interaction him with and Pike. Pike and Scanlan yep. right yeah it's like yeah. you actually see how he looks at the other people in the group whereas the rest of them very standard very yeah. yeah so Vax and Vax are probably in their intros are the most archetypy of the archetypes for these uh-huh. characters right we've got the half elves who who aren't really part of either society. We've got the tragic loss of the of the parent uh, by dragon, no less, um, and we've got sort of the the uh, typical ranger story and the typical rogue story all mixed into one. Um, I was I, I I liked it okay, uh, which is funny because they've grown to be uh, a top three for me uh, characters mm-hmm. overall. But the intros were were fine for what they were. But I agree, they Vax, easily Vax could have been cut down for, um, for time purposes and melded yep. into one. All right, so that's the intros. We're not going to do those again because that was twenty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to do it every single time. Are you sure? No, I'm. We will remark on it every time it happens, so the audience can hear my frustration. Um, <laughs> I very much feel like after the first one, they didn't need to do it. I know it was a, I know it was a time thing, and they eventually stopped and found other ways to fill that time. But I find that the just putting those on repeat was very, very annoying. Especially well, it's a time thing. Break as well. <laughs> it's yeah. a time thing, and also it's because you're still building an audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and, and you true. need you need to provide that sort of background for character for people who don't want to watch 30 episodes of three hours each, um, and but still want an idea of, of who yeah, these yeah. people are. But I'm, with, I'm definitely with John on this one, because I'm the guy that, that torrents a TV show and literally will skip the 30-second last week on Blindspot. Because I did, like, too. I already watched that episode. I know what happened. I you know, right? did the exact same thing. I skip <laughs> intros all the time. Torrentine, I have uh, no idea what this thing is. So, we'll go ahead and jump into the actual episode itself. So, the episode opens up, as I said previously, in Meteor Res. Uh, the group is on their way to a place called Craghammer, and we learn... Uh, that the Vox Machina, which is the name of the group of these individuals that we've just learned a lot about, uh, are hailed as the heroes of Iman, the capital city of the uh, continent that they currently live on. Um, they saved the emperor, uh, they saved the, the uh, yeah, the emperor of Iman uh, from demonic possession and incursion. Uh, as a reward, they were given a party and a castle and all sorts of fun gifts. Um, they went away for several months to do their own thing. Then they got back together and were sent on this quest 
uh, to Craghammer by uh, and and a lot of a lot of proper nouns get dropped in this intro. Uh, they were sent to Craghammer by the arcanist Alora Visorin to find Lady Kima of Vord, a halfling paladin of Bahamut, who was drawn to Craghammer upon learning of a great evil resting beneath it. Uh, she was last seen in the mithril mines of Craghammer, so they're going to need to go talk to Nostok Grayspine. Um, over the course of their entry to uh, as they were making their way, they uh, fought. They they came across a herd of barbarians uh, who cra- who who Grog recognized one of them, and the, a name was given. I don't remember what the name was, um, but Grog recognized one of them as proper noun, and the barbarian managed to charisma check his way through an encounter, so they didn't have to fight a barbarian. And that's where we enter in with the group arriving at Craghammer, having been sent from Alora Visorin to find Lady Kima. Um, and that's where we're dropped in. Yep. Now, how do you guys feel about in media res? Depends on how well it's executed. I was going to say, it's, it, honestly, as, as a device, I absolutely love it. Uh, during my various efforts at filmmaking, the one thing that has, that is sort of my holy grail is I would dearly love to find a new way to present exposition in a way that is not boring and hasn't been done before. When yep. you go so... in media's race, you just kind of skip that whole problem. And you're just like, hi, here's what's going on. There's a spaceship. There's a way bigger spaceship <laughs> following it and shooting it. There's a desert planet underneath. Welcome to Star Wars A New Hope. You know, I mean, right. it's like, boom, there you go. So yeah. So from Sorry, go for ahead. me, just just from a film from a from a film school perspective, um, there's a big problem in the in the industry of in the industry of film and storytelling and literature at the same time, uh, where people have taken to because they don't want to establish backstory in a convincing and easy to understand way, everybody drops stories in media res. They just right to the middle of the action, shock you into the story, and then we'll fill you in later. Which happens so much, I find it lazy. And that's fair. Um, mm-hmm. Because it has basically, it's it, it started off as a way to shake the formula that has now become formulaic. Yeah. It's it like in media res has become a paint by the numbers way of doing it. Drop them into an exciting portion of the story, and then after about five seconds of content, reel it back or just keep going and never explain what was going on before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that to be lazy because there's there's just that's an easy way to do it. We don't have to explain anything. We just jump right into it, never explain anything, and. It just bugs me on a very basic level. I understand why they did that for this, because it's a campaign, then we're jumping in the middle. We're, we, the audience, are actively jumping in the middle of it because they decided to start streaming it. Right. But it still bugs me. No, I get it. Because it, it, it's something you see weekly on television. Usually they will do the... It jumps into an cool. action scene, and then, you know hits to a right dramatic point and then cuts to the 36 hours later or earlier. Right. Yeah. That is, that is really, really lazy. And you see that you don't just see it in television. You see it in, in comics. You see it in, um, most forms of consumable entertainment now. 
Um, and the, like I said, when 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 we started talking about it, it's all about the execution. Yeah. And to to use a couple filmic comparisons from the last year, um, you look at how the DC uh, extended universe did it with with. Uh, Batman versus Superman, starting off with Superman well or Batman well into his uh, a career already, and in that case, it makes him sort of a sort of a, an amorphous entity. You don't really know what's going on with him, and it's really confusing. Then you look at, and not to make this a Marvel DC thing, but you look at Civil War. And the way that they just dropped uh, a Spider-Man in, and it's a lot more effective just because of the way they executed the characters. Here on, with with Arrival at Craghammer, I think it works because, A, you are starting off at the beginning of a story arc, at least. Um, you're not starting off, like, right in the middle of a, right in the middle of a battle, and then we cut to learning about the characters. It's not done for an excitement thrill. You get you right into it reason. Um, And so one of the things that this episode does is right off the bat, when you're coming in right from the fact of who knows how to speak Dwarven and trying to talk to the individual, trying to talk to the guards, you get an immediate sense of who the characters are. And so it works as an intro and both in media and in media res. Yeah, and I think the the key is the execution, like you guys have been saying, because any any effective trope, just add time and it will become a boring cliche, because yeah. enough people will do it, and enough people will just assume they know how to do it well because they've seen it done well before, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to translate into this next thing that's using it. So yeah, right. I agree with I agree honestly with both of you. Yeah, yeah. Now, the thing, and again, I hate in media res. That being said, what makes this an effective use of it is that we had we had backstories for all the characters coming up to the story, and we had a recap right at the very beginning, um, which sort of helps to set the scene. Scene setting is a drastically underused thematic component to writing. <laughs> um, yep. That has been forgotten. Yeah, like it, it. It used to be all over the place in old, like eight movies from the eighties and seventies. Um, they would have a narrator or a scripter or somebody, uh, like just two guys on the street, uh, that would set the scene. They would, you know, you you'd have, um, and I can't even think of any direct examples, but actually, no, I can. Running Man, the opening, the opening of Running Man. Have either of you ever seen Running Man? Um, uh, Jeremy, you admitted. The the Arnold Schwarzenegger oh God, yes. vehicle, yes. Oh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah, yeah, yeah. vehicle, where he's dropped into basically a a, a death game, a a reality TV show death game. The opening of Running Man was, I believe, if I remember correctly, a TV announcer explaining what the what the show was, mm-hmm. and then we jumped into it. That is setting the scene, um, because we have Matt as the GM. Uh, setting the scene, and we do have this background, I feel like in that case, this is a much better use of it. Um, yeah. Although Running Man, I think, was 90s, wasn't it? Running Man was 1987, yep. Oh, 87. No, 80s. Exactly mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Well, and year. like, even even you think back to the silver screen era, you know, I mean, like, 
every Errol Flynn movie ever made practically starts with a title card or Correct. six title cards, you know, to, to put the audience in the frame of mind that they need to start this swashbuckly narrative, you know. And we go uh, even further back, Shakespeare, right. as I referenced earlier. Henry mm-hmm. V, you know, Three I chorus. mean, you've got the chorus comes out who basically is like, well, we don't have all the stage pieces we need, so let me tell you what's going on, you know. Exactly. Um, and for just for one more modern comparison, Robin Hood Men in Tights. Yes. The Lord of the Rings. With... <laughs> Lord of the Rings. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the setup is essential and right. effective. And if you case. can pull yeah. it off with good style where it doesn't feel contrived, great. If yep. you're lazy, doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. So the group come to Craghammer, and they have a bit of a kerfuffle in the at the at the doorway, uh, talking with you know. Uh, does anybody speak Dwarvish? Yes, I do, but it wasn't necessary. Which I which I always find to be, if I were writing it, that's exactly how I would have written it, was to have <laughs> a character come up and start talking in Dwarvish to the to the dwarf very self importantly, very touristy, like oh pardon me sir, which it was Tiberius as a matter of fact who who started talking in Dwarvish. Yeah, pardon me sir, in in Dwarvish, uh, do you have any sort of direction to an establishment that I could use? And blah 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 blah. That's my Tiberius impersonation. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> um, Poppycock. And then immediately the guy in common or English as we know it going, yeah, there's a thing right over there. <laughs> and doing the thing that you would do to tourists, going, yeah, no, you want to go to the pigsty, you know, the, right. or was it the, the pig pen? The pig, pig pits. pits. That was the it. The pig pits. Yep. Yeah, the pig pits. That's the end you want to go to, and trying to, you know, mess with the tourists. Uh, very well executed opening uh, bit there. Mm-hmm. They and eventually... does a great job, I thought, at establishing the atmosphere of this particular city. Granted, this is the first city we've seen, so, you know, we don't really have anything to compare it to, but... You have these people who have come in. It's already been established they had the official paperwork, so they're not actually trying to, you know, finagle their way past uh, security or anything. But even with all the right credentials in place, they're still not that welcoming of outsiders. They right. still get run through the hazing ritual right off the bat. Well, and they're, they're tourists and they're treated right. as such. What I like about this, and this is going to be just a running theme running through this whole, this talking about this whole episode, is the first episode was, was so important to establish all the characters. Um, and with every interaction, you see that. With this one, you see, uh, like you said, talking about Tiberius going, oh, I speak Dwarven and I'll handle it, and being completely inept at doing it while... Vex, on the other hand, quickly <laughs> yep. susses out exactly what you need to do, which also, of course, plays into her knowledge of the value of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and it very qu- it, it does what the intros did, only in terms of how they interact with each other. Yeah, yeah, and that was, I mean, for me, that that moment was one of the things that solidified Vex as one of my absolute favorite characters in the entire story. And that has been carried through because, you know, yeah, you're right. Tiberius takes the logical, self-focused, immediately apparent solution. Let me go address these people in their native language. Vex takes 30 seconds, stand back, watches, which is one of the character traits that she personally (laughs) cites in her own introduction, and then comes up with that solution that's just off-center enough 
to cut past most of the bullshit and get them what they need. Yep. And as the as she so to reference what we were talking about, after Tiberius gets directed towards the, the pig pits, Vex uh, gives them some money, gives them some gold, and they direct them towards the Iron Hearth Tavern, which is an actual place to stay. And the response is, ah, someone in your party speaks Dwarvish uh, to <laughs> the gold. Um, which, uh, again, very, very good character building. So the group go to the Iron Hearth Tavern, uh, where Grog immediately makes some friends uh, by... Uh, by uh, walking over and starting to drink and compare scars. Um, then Vaxil Don, uh showing the complete opposite understanding of money that his sister has, <laughs> buys the entire tavern around. Um, which, again, sets up these characters very well. And I find that that in particular... Va- uh, Vex's Vex the sisters uh, desire to hoard money versus Vax the brothers desire to spend money. Um, Vax is a rogue; he doesn't need money. If he wants something, he steals it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Vex is not; she's a ranger. She needs money. Also, she knows what being poor is like. Yeah. Um, so these these are very two very interesting character choices that also inform their class, mm-hmm. um, which I'm which I'm I am not certain if that was something that came, they came up with on their own or if that's just a, a natural progression of being a rogue doing roguey things, being a ranger doing rangery things. But um, they very very clearly uh, showcase some of that personality. Um, and I in, also in buying. Go ahead. Go ahead. And no, I no, also, interrupt me I also anytime. like how Vax is not the stereotypical um, detached rogue. I've seen a lot of people play rogues and trying to play according to how they think, you know, what sort of person would take on this back alley, stealthy criminal lifestyle? Oh, obviously a misanthropist. You know, Vax right out of the gate shows that he is ready, willing, and happy to engage people on equal footing to attempt to make friends, which also fits the class very well. It's not necessarily the most common choice, but it's a very effective, very consistent choice. It also shows, it also shows both the twins being people, people persons, Mm -hmm. but in a very, but in two very different directions. Very different directions. Um, So the, the uh, after buying the tavern around, the the group starts uh, speaking with the tavern owner Alda or Adra, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, who explains a bit of how things go around here. She gives them the typical, uh, "You guys are outsiders. This is how things go in the city. Please don't piss off the carvers," which uh, el- elicits what we are going to what what we're going to have a lot of over the course of this rewatch of characters misunderstanding things that NPCs tell them. <laughs> Um, this is the first instance, if not the last, uh, where they, she says the carvers in a very conversational tone and they don't know what that means. So they immediately go, who are the carvers? What are the carvers? Are they secretive? Are they things that we do? Uh, uh, you know, are they assassins? Are they, are they, are they mob bosses? Are they what? No, they're the guards. The guards are called carvers. Um, which, you know, uh, the first in the long list of, of, not intentional, but definite misunderstandings um, that spawn hilarity and other things at the same time. Uh, I find that that's a that's not a usual character trait that you would write into a story, 
Um, you don't typically write characters that misunderstand every other word that's spoken to them. Right. But it's very natural. Like, it's very real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then operating off that misinformation is also very real and something you only really get in D&D. Um, yeah. But the, uh, the, the whole sequence following this where it, you know, I mean, they spend a good amount of time trying to gather information. All of it's relevant yes. information to to what they have, you know. Who do we need to talk to to get in the mine? Has anybody seen Kima come through? All these sort of things, you know. I mean, and some of it's story arc focused uh, for, in a sense, the main quest they have going on. Grog goes off on his little, who do I need to fight around here? Because there's a fighting <laughs> ring, obviously. So I'm going to fight somebody, you know. Uh, yep. And and I wanted to, to get your guys' take on that. What do you think of the the, the narrative effectiveness of basically just a whole bunch of people running around town trying to figure out what they need to know. So it's good from a player perspective, from like a D and D perspective. Mm-hmm. If I were writing it though, it would have been much more. The party gathers information in the course of gathering, gathering information. They learn this, this and this um, because there's, a, there's, there's an old saying that I always have held to. If you're not showing us the most interesting aspect of your story, why are you showing it to us? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that holds true in films, movies, and books. Um, sorry, films, movies, films, television, and books. Um, you never want to show downtime. Or the, the, the you never want to show the hinges that connect your doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly because... When you look at the hinges and, in, and inspect them further, that's where the faults start to show. Yeah. Um, as a D&D session, that's perfectly fine and entertaining. From a writing perspective, which is what we're doing all of this from, I find it to be excessive mm-hmm. and unnecessary. Um, that That's kind of why when, when I'm GMing, I shortcut a lot of the downtime stuff. Mm-hmm. I'll be like, okay, you're going to be traveling for seven days. Is there anything specific you want to do over the course of those seven days? And then my players will go, yes, I want to do this, or yes, I want to do this. I want to have a conversation with this person over the course of time. Okay, let's focus in on that. So on day three, two people get together and have a conversation. Um, it, so because that the, the conversation is more important and more interesting than on day one, I fish. On day two, I hunt. On day three, I slip in some horse shit, although that's funny. <laughs> right. um, but like the the tedium between the interesting stuff, I could I could do without. Uh-huh. What about you, Jeremy? Well, so this kind of thing is an opportunity. I don't think it's taken as much in this chance, just because there's there's so much of this that's done outside of it. But when when you have an ensemble group like this, and and you go to split them off. That's the opportunity to see how these characters interact off of each other in 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 particular groupings, and you do see some of that. You get to see some of Vax and Vex going going off of each other, and that sibling sort of um, uh, um, joshing and so on. You get to see sort of why you know Tiberius going off on his own direction and and doing his thing and why. I don't think that's taken advantage of as much, but I also don't see it as much of a problem here because in film, television, and even in books, even though it's a little bit less so, 
there's always the concern about real estate um, Mm -hmm. in terms of time. You only have so much time in which to tell your story. You have 22 episodes or 10 episodes or two hours or 500 pages unless you're writing the Wheel of Time books. But that's another story. Um, We're not even going to go there. Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But you, you have a very limited amount of space. This format that they're doing, a, a digital live stream and on-demand format, cuts out the need of that, so it's not as much of an issue, and they're able to be a bit, a little bit more leisurely in a narrative sense. Not, a, not only in a Dungeons and Dragons sense, but in a narrative sense as well. So it doesn't bother me as much. It would have been nice to see a little bit more of that, okay, you've split these characters off, now let's see how they interact with each other in one-on-one situations, which, of course, we see a lot more of as the show progresses. But yeah. So, uh, they gather information, just like you said. Um, we see different sort of vignettes of different aspects of them trying to gather information. Uh, they try to get information out of Balgus, the, the, the reigning champion. Keyleth and Vex try flirting with him. Doesn't go well. Um, but, uh, you know, they, 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 they eventually get some information out of him. Um, and they, they learn a little bit about Nostok Grayspine, the person they need to, that they need to go convince. And they spend some time getting resources with which to do so. They, they learn that they need to, um, they need to, uh, get, Information. They need to get some sort of gift for Nostok in order to see him, and uh, Bulgus offers them this sort of uh, thistle branch dark blood wine uh, for five hundred gold, which Vex then haggles down to one cup of congealed dragon blood. Um, they then split up and explore the town, uh, finding more, not only finding more information but also looking for information. Uh, sorry, finding more information but also looking for just things that pique their interest. Uh, Pike goes to bed. Percy and Keyleth, uh, um, they make comment cards for Belen, uh, the bar, the, the barmaider. Um, uh, Scanlan and Grog go and find a a brothel, the Stone's Pillow, which we learned about in their character intros. They yep. both like to go to. Uh, Grog gets his money's worth with an aggressive elf, and Scanlan gets manhandled by a dwarf, yep. which he may or may not have enjoyed. I don't remember if he enjoyed. No, it, he actually. did. He yeah, did. He did. Right, yeah. yeah, he 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 succeeded on a fairly significant constitution save. He was <laughs> totally down. <laughs> All right. Uh Vaxeldon, Vax and Vex uh do some reconnaissance while everybody else are stooping and drinking and sleeping. Um they go to sort of, sort of scout out Gracebine Manor. Uh they get a little bit of attention from the carvers, but they uh manage to uh sort of divert their attention away. Um, Tiberius goes... Tiberius goes straight to the mage house in the area um, and attempts to invade? Yeah. And thus begins my opinion of Tiberius Stormwind immediately starting to drop. (laughs) I just... I... Spoiler alert so for Ti- people in advance. He's not one of my favorite characters by a long shot. So Tiberius goes to House Thunderbrand and attempts to talk to people. Um, 
He, he attempts to talk to... He, he's trying to get magical... He's trying to get information on these magical items that he's looking for. Um, and he goes to the door, and uh, when he steps onto the ground, he immediately gets ejected by a magical trap. Uh, it's obvious that these people don't want to talk to anybody, um, unless you know how to do it. And so he spends about 15 to 20 minutes doing various things, trying to get their attention, casting spells at this house. Completely oblivious to the fact that he's casting, that he's trying to solve a puzzle in the middle of a town that has active guards. Uh, and, uh, and not not necessarily which, solving a puzzle with the least violent means at hand. Right. No, he's casting offensive spells at this house. Um, and uh, he gives up just as he's getting surrounded by guards. Um, he intimidates them apologizes and leaves which is pretty funny but is certainly a character that this guy you know he has a low wisdom score he doesn't use common mm -hmm. sense mm -hmm. um and that i can certainly understand why that can be a slightly irritating aspect i of mean character. so it's a moment that really gives you a very clear idea of who tiberius is in in a lot of different ways and i'm not say i'm not trying to be sarcastic when i say that because i'm not a fan um, it, it gives you a very strong sense of a, he doesn't have a lot of, he doesn't, uh, really think things through a lot for as intelligent as he is. Uh, he's magically adept. Um, and he has absolutely no idea of how to speak to people at all yeah. ever. Um, so in that sense, as a character establishing scene, it's really great. Um, it just depends on whether you like that sort of character, and I really don't. Well, and I think to an extent as well, you do have to factor in, because, you know, as as literary as I'd like to, to analyze this scene, there is a player here who's playing a Correct. game. Correct. No, absolutely. Um, and, and there is that type of player in all tabletop RPGs. If you give them an obstacle, they, they will immediately assume this is a puzzle I have to solve and get past right, right now. You know... If I went up to a place of business or a library or some place where I was just going to get information and I couldn't get in the door, my first thought is not, do I have a sledgehammer in my car? You know? <laughs> but, but there are people who think right, that way. But apparently, yes. yeah. But there there are people who think that way, you know? And if that's the character that, that Orion is playing here, well and good. Keep consistent with your character, you know? Don't shy away from those moments that where you can really share and explain, hey, this is who my character is. Um, but there is an interesting theme running through both of these scenes for me, where Vex and Vax go down into this sector of the city looking for the Gracefine Manor, um, and upon being confronted by the local constabulary, immediately start lying through their teeth about who they are and what they're doing. Tiberius, having more or less committed actions that would definitely justify at least attempted breaking and entering charges immediately just starts shouting at the guards and trying to, by force of personality, make them back down. These people do not have the best relationship with authority, it would seem. No, they don't. You no. Know, and, and you know, the, the idea that, you know, there there's and the, the sense of self-preservation that I think most characters 
if you're looking at it from a particular writing <coughs> standpoint, would have would be the the officially appointed law enforcement of the community wherein I'm going to have to work probably shouldn't just throw down with them or start trying to pull the wool over their eyes right off the bat. But that's the yeah. choices that the, the players make for their characters, which is interesting to me. And I find I find it, it definitely. I agree. It sets up it sets up exactly what their personality is, what their what their intentions of dealing with the law are. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I could have written a better pair of scenes. Oh yeah, no. Um, like to go side by side to show the two different ways this group approaches dealing with guards. Yeah. Um, it definitely makes a, it's a lot of characterization. Mm-hmm. So they eventually retire for the night. Um. Uh, Vax sneaks back uh, once more to, to look at Grace Vine Manor just for a little bit more and then he goes back to the tavern. They all retire for the night. In the morning they have uh, what is a, was going to be a commonplace occurrence of the morning after scene where everyone gets up together, has breakfast and awkwardly talks about things that might have happened over the night. Um, Scanlan, and, or Scanlan and Grog talk about or sorry I believe Scanlan and Grog talked about that they had hickeys. Although, for some reason, this says... The thing that I'm reading from says Vex. Yes. During the scene, I don't... I don't, I don't I never understood the reference. Unless it was a reference to um, a, a, a barb at um, uh, Vex for suggesting that they pretend to be married. But when they talk about... The, uh, when when Scanlan says, I have hickeys, Vex says, I think I do too. Yeah. Okay, yeah. For some reason, my brain, when I was watching, just went, uh, and I didn't catch that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so uh, they both made hickeys. Vax suggests they use diplomacy to approach Nostock Grayspine uh, when Adra knocks on their door uh, as uh, Trinket is being prodded into a fighting ring by some of the dwarves. Uh, so they go back downstairs where the fighting ring is and uh, where Balgus is attempting to fight the bear. <laughs> <sighs> um, Vex runs in, declares that uh, she'll take on the bear. Uh, Keyleth casts fog over the ring and runs in, casting polymorph on Trinket, turning him into a rat, throwing him to Scanlan, shifting him to a bear herself. Uh, there's a lot of... So uh, the, the the we've already discussed how Tiberius overanalyzes a quote unquote problem and tries to go <laughs> to the furthest extent possible to solve it. He's not the only one we learn in this scene, as the the party uses the most convoluted way they possibly can to solve a problem, which is a recurring theme. Yep. Um. Uh. Like again, just reading it. Uh. We use uh, a spell, a natural ability, uh, uh, several several conversation checks, um, betting, um, then Vax uh, inter- interjects, uh, trying to knock out Balgus, starting trying to start <laughs> another fight. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the innkeeper comes in trying to take on the thing. Vex has Keyleth do some tricks. Um, the whole thing devolves Tiberius into a dog and pony show. Yeah. The whole thing devolves into a circus, into a Russian circus act. <laughs> um, and then 
everything calms everything just works out and calms down so what this is what what i to contrast with sort of the the other one um when when the group does it overly complexly it's because everybody just acts on instinct and does mm-hmm. one individual thing and then somebody has to cover for that and then somebody has to cover for that and then somebody has to cover from that so it's not really that they're overthinking it they're just this group is so instinctually acting and um, they don't communicate with and they each don't other. communicate which is great from a narrative sense because it allows to see sort of how these characters um, interact with each other very quickly. Oh yeah. Uh, w- when they don't have a lot of time to think about what they're going to do, um, which which worked out well in this particular case. Right. Because yeah, um, seven stooges always... sometimes accomplish more than three can. You know exactly. Yeah. Um, but but the and the the key I think element there is like you hit on is something happens and you have seven different brains at a table going what can I do to solve this and then everybody and tries to re- has to enact their solution at the same time as everybody else which just adds more and more levels of complexity to the whole situation as it's going down. Well, to be fair, it should be said. There are six different brains that work on it, and this is not to be constantly ba- uh, knocking on the character, but um, but Tiberius, when the whole thing starts and everything, he just uh, basically says "fuck it" and sits up there, go, goes to sit down and drink his tea and watch. True, um, which I think is interesting, and it sort of goes with the the contrast between Vex and Vax and and Tiberius on the night before, because you have the the twins go out and they do something very specifically to to uh, in the service of the party. Um, well, Tiberius sort of goes off on his own. Is like, well, you know, not that he's not justified. Most of the rest of the group is too, but goes off on his own and to try and 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 find magical items for his own purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, here you have, you know, everybody sort of jumps in to, 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 to save Trinket. And then Tiberius is like, well, they should be entertaining to watch. Yeah. I'm again, going back to what I said at the beginning, he's an aristocrat. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they, they solve everything. Everything calms down and that's where they take their break. And we are treated to a looping video of the character intros <laughs> over and over. <laughs> so, do we want to talk about those again in depth again? <laughs> no, so we're not. So, first up was to. Grog, uh, and this is what we learned about Grog. <laughs> and, then, and this is how Jack dies. <laughs> um, so, the next morning, uh, Percy insists on everybody eating brunch. Uh, I, I also want to say it's the next morning again. Yeah, I think they just continued on with the same day. Did they? Did they rest again? I don't remember. I think there was in in the narrative. I'm pretty sure there was a little bit of a hiccup on everybody's time perception because yeah, because I think right, I think because technically forgot the... right, technically the bear fight starts the next morning, but from a narrative perspective, it makes a lot more sense that the bear fight actually happened the night before once everybody got back. Because then they immediately talk about where we're going to have Trinket sleep and this whole thing. 
Yep. Yeah, so they kind of they kind of double backed on their time, mm-hmm. and from a writing perspective, I would agree. I think the t- I think the trinket thing should have happened the the night before. If I were writing it, the trinket thing would have been the end of that night, right? Not the beginning of the next morning. Yes, um, because that way, Balgus is still drunk enough to think he's going to fight a bear. Exactly. <laughs> um, so the next morning. Whatever they're retconning. Uh, Percy insists that he wants to send to brunch. Tiberius insists they go back to House Thunderbrand. They, because, again, this is another example of Tiberius pushing his agenda. Yep. Um, and, and trying to get, and this time trying to get the group to help him with it. Um, uh, everyone, uh, but but then, it, you know, uh, they they sort of, they sort of talk him down from that and say, we're going go to gonna go to Gracepine Manor. Um, so they finish their Dwarven brunch. And head to Gracepine Manor, at which point Tiberius uses Alter Self to turn himself into a dwarf. Yep. Because he's a dwarf now that speaks dwarvish. And, he, and uh, you can see that you can sort of see the logic there where he's like, okay, well, if I, maybe we'll get a better reception if there's a dwarf with amongst us. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to become a dwarf. And again, with that not thinking things through of I don't know anything about dwarven culture or who I'm supposed to be, or what I'm supposed to say, or how I'm supposed to act, well, <laughs> or carry myself, or do anything that you would need to know to actually pass off as a dwarf. He just thinks surface rationality works. Well, right? that goes that goes hand in hand with with a key word that that was mentioned in regard to Tiberius, which is privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's a buzzword these days, but but it very much fits in that he's like, well. I've encountered a dwarf before. Clearly, I know all about dwarves, and I know all about how to portray one and what their society is like. So, poof. And I want to, I want to, I want to jump back to the beginning dwarves. real quick yes. because there's actually something else that that provides that. Um, at the very beginning, when they ask, "Does anyone speak dwarvish?" Tiberius goes, "I do," and Keyleth, sitting next to him, in character, goes, "Where'd you learn that?" And in character, he responds, "Well, from a book, of course." Yep. Right. Which I feel like, from a book, of course, describes a lot of Tiberius's decisions. Correct. <laughs> because, of course I know about Dwarven culture. I've read about it. <laughs> Which, as anybody who's traveled outside the United States can tell you, is all that you need in order to understand a foreign culture. <laughs> all of you need. You just need a book and you're good. Yep. Um, so. Get that Russian English uh, dictionary, man. Preferably solve just... this Cold War in no time. Preferably just one book because you don't want to have too much nuance. You want one person's perspective. Exactly. <laughs> um, so the same four guards that met Vax and Vex uh, are there, um, except Thompson, Vex's friend, who was given the day off. Which can um, I just say one of my favorite elements? Well, one of my favorite elements because we've got Adra, we've got Bulgus, we've got <laughs> Nostok Grayspine, and we've got Thompson. <laughs> Thompson. And I'm sorry, I've always loved that, that was, sort of joke, you know, the Fangs, the Tangs, the and the McSweeney's, you know, very yep. old family, you know, right, that sort of thing. Yeah, I feel like that was a, um, that was a, I'm running out of names. <laughs> right, which, as, thing? as all of us have DM'd, we know happens, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you, you, you guys have met my, I'm pulling this name out of my ass <laughs> name. Sometimes the city guards are named Steve and Ted. Right. <laughs> And hey, Ted and Steve have a wonderful adventure. Yes, they do. Um, all right, so uh, they 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 
The guards are impressed with the gift that Vox Machina is preparing to give to Gracebine, and Vex promises to save a bottle for each of them when they open the barrel, and the guards let them continue. So again, with Vex being able to read people better than anybody else in this party, um, it's like, I know what you guys want. We'll get it for you later. <laughs> um, they go to the door. Uh, there's a there's a chain. <laughs> and Keyleth with the most glee we have ever seen a person in this party have At, to, up to this point yanks the chain yep. after Percy um, has already used it yeah like Percy pulls it you hear a thing and she goes ah bam <laughs> and then Scanlan uh, Scanlan sings a song to the door because he's Scanlan. Uh, uh, so uh, Margrim, a servant, uh, opens the door and informs them that a Nostok Grayspine is currently working at the quarry uh, and directs them there. Let's let's not skip too quickly over, however, my absolute oh, no, no, favorite no. joke no, no, that no. shows up. I was just about, okay, good. I was just about to go into that uh, because as Mar- well, no, I'm, I'm, I might miss the joke because I'm just I just have the details of what happened, not the not the specifics of the dialogue. Um, but Scanlan. Cast invisibility on himself. No, this is before that. And runs into the house. Okay. Because okay. because Tiberius is still in dwarf form. And we get this hilarious, yes. uh, actually, from, from a literary perspective, we get a flashback scene where they talk about the troll dick and that this is not the first time he's used Alter Self to change his appearance and he almost yep. got raped by two male trolls. Hilarious, you know, that sort of thing. Margram answers the door, and they they keep treating Tiberius in dwarf form like he's their get-out-of-jail-free card. They did it with the guards, now they're trying to do it with Margram. And Margram looks at him and says, what's your name? And he, yeah. and he says, oh, my name's Tiberius Craghammer. <laughs> and everybody just dies because, like, like, like Sam Regal says, yes, my name's Johnny New York. This right. is my first time to the city. No, actually, I'm from here. I don't know what's going on. And that's literally, you know, it's it's one of my favorite moments from this very first episode to see uh, yeah. this sort of fly by the seat of your pants and realize, yeah, as great as you guys were with defusing the bear bar fight. Sometimes it swings the other way and will bite you in the ass. Yeah, sometimes it pays to think before you talk. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, that that was that that was a great that that was a very funny scene. Yes, I I I just have the act I have the events written down oh, to yeah. speed mm-hmm. things up. But um, but yeah, the so yeah, if you guys take notes on dialogue, that'd be great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um. So yeah, that happens, and I, I do remember that, and that that was pretty funny. They 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 eventually get the information they need, and then Scanlan casts invisibility on himself and walks inside while before the door closes. We're not sure why, and he's not sure why, uh, which I think is the best part of this whole oh, thing. Yeah. Why'd you do that? I don't know. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Is probably what's going to be um, engraved on Scanlan Shorthart's gravestone he, at some point. He nervously he 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 lets he farts. Uh, sneaks around and then leaves. Uh, he describes uh, his adventure as exciting but ultimately pointless. Uh, to which Vax reminds them that the dwarves are not their enemies. Right. And yep. I think that, that that's a that's a key sort of element of the whole thing. You know, there's there's a significant th- theme for these characters of they they get blinders on, they see their goal, and they just 
bore right through it with one or two of the characters maybe the at a time saying hey guys collateral damage let's let's watch what we're yeah. doing here for a bit you know and that torch passes from individual to individual vax does carry it i think a lot more than most people but mm-hmm. yeah mhm I do find it. I find it. I, I find it actually pretty indicative of the adventuring party. Oh yes. Like at this point in time, they are the typical adventuring party. They are a group of people that you know have a goal and they know what they need to do and they just go and do it. Yep. And then you know uh, after they get done doing it, they turn back and see that an entire hamlet has been set on fire <laughs> and they're not sure how that happened. <laughs> um. And, and and this is this like that adventure as an in, and its entirety is very much in keeping with that. Um, Scanlan had a goal, which was to uh, find Nostok Gracepine, and this is his house. And even though they had just been told he wasn't there, he still wanted to go in and make sure. Right. So he went in and made sure, and found out yes, the person that they had just talked to was not in fact lying to them. Um. Which comes up a lot. They do a lot of insight checks. Uh, they've, they've, I think they've already done several in, over the course of this episode. Yes. Um, where they, they, they won't trust the words coming out of whoever's mouth it is for... They don't have necessarily have a reason to not trust them. They just don't trust them because they're an NPC. Um, and so they roll insight checks like all the time. I mean, but that works from a narrative sense. Because yeah. that's the kind of thing that... Normally, you would see. <laughs> well, normally, if you're watching a show or if you're 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 reading a book or something, you as an audience member see somebody reacting a certain way, and off of visual ticks you see, or some kind of way the shot is framed or something, you there's this immediate sense of untrustworthiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Matt's really good at playing a lot of that off, but there's a lot of that that you just can't get. So the insight checks at least give us give the viewer the opportunity to get more information that even if sometimes the the characters don't play off of it does a good job of sort of building either that tension or or a little more in depth as to what that that NPC is all about. You yeah, know, no, it's it's perfectly valid and you know it it does have this it it sort of it, it sort of justifies a lot of their actions in especially like Scanlan's actions because we can tell they're paranoid as a group they're paranoid mm-hmm. they're very they they don't trust very easily none of them do um, even each other they don't always trust very <laughs> no. easily and so you know this it's, it sets up very early on that they don't trust people mm-hmm. um, and that they will guard that information as much as they can. They'll lie, cheat, and steal their way out of whatever they can do because they don't trust people. Right. So, uh, they continue on towards the quarry. Uh, they uh, make they make their way to the mines. Keyleth druid crafts uh, some flowers and ivy vines over the wine cask for no reason. Which is, um, no, it, it, it's for no reason, but it's just such a perfect sort of oh, yeah. princess moment for her. Right. Yeah, no, it's it's the it's birds coming in, landing on her on her shoulders, and tweeting yes, out a, a right. lovely we're, song we're, at her. We're gonna Disney princess this up because yeah, we're gonna yeah, that. yeah, we're gonna make it pretty because yep. that's what dwarves want. Uh, so they go and meet with Nostok. Uh, he takes a drink of the wine, and Percy becomes the face of the party and starts talking and starts asking about Lady Kima. Um, 
He informs the party that Lady Kim had gone to the mines earlier. He gave he, and he gave them permission to enter as well to retrieve her, which is um, which is something that I find interesting because and Percy has this is the second time that Percy has done this because he became the face <laughs> when they were talking to Margram as well. Anytime that it's it, anytime the the dialogue starts to edge towards that bureaucratic uh, area, Percy just jumps on that and. Mm-hmm. I mean, rightfully so, because that is the type of noble that he was. He underst- mm-hmm. He feel the character feels like he understands protocol etiquette. You know the the yeah. sort of savvy approach of let's not play he- around at what we're all doing here. We know how this game is run, so let's do that. Yeah, he's the he's the opposite of Tiberius. Right. He's a bureaucrat mm-hmm. where Tiberius is an aristocrat. Right. Um, so, they talk, they they get permission to go into the mines, um, Keyless suggests that there's trouble in the mines that they could help with, but Nostok says there isn't anything and everything's under control, uh, sort of, you know, very, I run my mine. And, and also that, that this is another example of, of, um, players misinterpreting information they've been given. Uh, because we, the audience, learned at the beginning of the story that the evil is underneath the mine, mm-hmm. not in the mine. Um, but as this happens, a large bell starts ringing out. Gnostic shoes them out, and uh, they, um, as as they as uh, claiming their business is done, as they're doing it, Vax Everbold tries to steal some wine out of the cask, gets caught says, oh, no, 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 I was just trying to refill your flask. Um, <laughs> and the guards slightly leave them- earlier than that, we had another great Vex moment where immediately mm-hmm. of having gotten permission to go into the mine, said, okay, and how much is it worth to you for us to clean it out for you? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and that that as far as I'm aware, probably, you know, reading into the character as much as I can, you know, that that level of kind of solitude and abandonment that she feels from her father, from her now-deceased mother, you know, money is security for her, which is why yeah. she tries to get more of it every chance she possibly can, you know, and yep. and even... You know, any of the party probably looking at the situation would have <laughs> been able to read Nostok and say, yeah, this is probably not the kind of guy that you want to try and haggle with and try and bleed him for a little bit of spare change. But that that internal character motivation that she has is so strong that Vex goes for it so. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> so uh, they're led outside. They hear bells and shouting and something is coming out of the quarry. So they head down there and try to help out. Uh, they find bloody dwarves coming out of, uh, out of the tunnels, followed by goblins. Uh, the goblins attack. Uh, they attack the goblins. Um, Tiberius casts fireball, <laughs> killing goblins and dwarves. Uh huh. We talked about collateral damage earlier. I mean, Tiberius is almost always the one that causes collateral damage. Yep. Still fits his character. Oh, it, it's perfectly fit to his character. Mm-hmm. Yes, people hate his character. <laughs> and, but you know what? I would still write it that oh, way. No, yes, absolutely. If I was writing a Tiberius character, 
that would be that would be absolutely perfect. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, I have a character that has done that. I mean, he has some great moments. Let's let, uh, further down the line. We'll get there. We'll so get, yeah, we'll get there. Yes. We'll get there. So yeah, he he you know burns up the goblins, kills the dwarves that could have been saved, um, and uh, we we get an interesting. So we actually see two different approaches to spellcasting here. Uh, Tiberius using a fireball and uh, Keyleth using entangle to try to trap the goblins, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as opposed to killing dwarves. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, Scanlan sort of gets very serious and talks about how he hates goblins and they're all going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and telling the party not to spare any of the goblins. Yep. Um, as two ogre-like creatures come out of the mines as well. Well, and Tiberius' um, killing of the dwarves is also interesting as well because the very first round of combat is three of them saving a dwarf that is being attacked yeah. by goblins. And then the very next thing that happens is Tiberius just nukes everybody else down. Yep. And again, let me know if let me. I'm trying to jump through the oh, fighting yeah, no as worries. much as possible yeah. because it's 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 all mechanics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if there's anything that you guys want to call out, just go ahead and let me. I know mean, and call it out. there's like like that. It's mechanic. There's that's the thing about the fights and what I love about combat in Dungeons and Dragons and how it works in a narrative sense. You get this. Uh, you get this more in D anD D than you do in 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 most uh, uh, storytelling methods. You, you still get some of it um, in in film and television, <coughs> but it's usually more how it's staged and fighting styles and things like that. Is you really get to see a lot about the characters and in how they go about the fighting. Um, mm-hmm. Tiberius and the and the fireball and the the not thinking at all, Keyleth in the in the um, uh, in in all of her stuff pretty much is preserving life and and protecting whether it's the um, entangle or the wall of stone that comes up in a few uh, a little yeah. bit later. You, when I when I say I'm skipping, I mean the fight is two hours. Right? Long. No, yes, I'm not. <laughs> We're not breaking it down turn by turn. Um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. and I just wanted wanted to let, yeah. put that back out. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you guys. The that there's a lot more narrative potential through. in a fight yes. in D and D than there yes. is in most other forms of storytelling because it is very slowly paced, and there's enough time in between the individual actions for honestly a little bit of dialogue. You get to see how somebody fights not just what they do but how mm-hmm. they do it um you know yeah. and yeah there's there's this there's enough of a tactical application to where you can sort of express the inner nature of the character by what is happening around them i don't know if any of you guys saw one of matt colville's videos of uh, fantasy versus fiction I um, just saw that the other day. I didn't get a chance to watch it, but I, but I saw right, yeah. it. I would highly recommend it because, yeah, basically he talks about sort of, you know, putting Mercer on one end of a DMing spectrum and him toward sort of the other end. Not that, not in a in a good, bad, or a competitive sense, but just does the story manifest based on what's happening within the psyche and personalities and internal conflicts of the characters, or is there a plot happening in the world 
that the characters have to throw themselves at to try to affect, you know, and, and the, yeah. the various differentiations there. And I think he rightly says Mercer crafts his stories based on what's happening to the characters rather than right. establishing a plot line and just seeing how the characters react and try to change it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and talking about the fighting, uh, from a fight choreography background, because I do fight choreography in theater as well as acting, um, that you can learn a lot from fights in, in, from, from, from any and all fights, Mm -hmm. especially in theater, in film, and even in, in, in novelizations. Um, you know, to, to quote these two's, uh, most hated book series in the world, apparently, (laughs) but the Driss Duarden series. (laughs) No, uh, no, no, no. Ari Salvatore. Um, well, no, there's a point. Yeah. Um, uh, Ari Salvatore goes into great detail in almost all of his fighting scenes, and his fighting scenes can last as long as a round of combat does in a D&D session. Yeah. Um, but there's always great pains taken in the details of how his characters fight and how the monsters fight and how they solve physical problems of a, of a combat uh, through their style of, of combat, you know, with, you know, whether it's Drist running up a giant to stab it in the face or Wolfgar, you know, hurling his, his, his hammer and throwing boulders as well. Uh, Cady Bree, you know, climbing to an, to an advantageous position and firing from, from up above. <coughs> Excuse me. The same can be said of characters in D and D in a D and D combat, you know, how they approach the puzzle that is combat says a lot about their character. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, um, they continue on the fight. Um, Tiberius continues to cast fireballs uh, as uh, um, Percy knocks himself out with uh, a shot from his gun. <laughs> well, he doesn't knock himself out, but he hurts himself when his, when his, when his uh, rifle backfires in his face. And that's something uh, <laughs> Percy and his gun it's a perfect moment if I was if you were writing this from uh, a show writing or, or, or novelization section, because whether that was planned or not, I suspect that it wasn't, and he'd just been working on it for all, for that amount of time, and this happened to be when it happened. But this is the first time he busts out bad news. Um, his 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 super badass gun, and so. It gives Percy a, a great opportunity to we learn just how how skillful of a tinkerer he is. Um, gives him that really cool combat moment, um, and then takes it, away. and then sort of takes it away. But it, I I really liked how that timing just happened to work out. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um. <clears throat> so. Uh, ogres come out, start fighting. Tiberius casts another fireball, um, killing more, uh, you know, hit, hitting, killing more goblins, um, and then, uh, you know, using more spells to to knock the uh, ogres prone, um, and then letting uh, the others sort of take care of the ogres, uh, in, indicating to Grog that you know they're all yours. Um, Vex. Uh, you know, runs around using Hunter's Mark and shooting at the ogres, uh, showing that she has a little bit of magical potential as a ranger using her lightning arrow. Um, uh, killing 
I don't think no, I don't think she kills anything. No, she doesn't Vex? kill. No, 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 she yeah, does. Vex kills yes, one of the ogres. Yes, she does. Yeah. She mm-hmm. kills one of the ogres. She kills one of the ogres, then Grog uh, runs in. Um, uh, he, he, this is where we... I think, believe this is the first time we hear, I would like to yes, rage. Um, as he rushes in and kills a goblin with an axe. So character catchphrases, uh, where do you guys fall on that from a storytelling perspective? Um... I don't mind them if they feel natural. Yep. Mm-hmm. And this one, I, uh, the I would like to rage feels natural to Grog. Yes. Because it's 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 a it's an it's a anachronism for him. Right. It is it's it's very out of place because he's a he's a Goliath barbarian with a very low intelligence. He doesn't really ask permission <laughs> um, to do things. Especially not something as basic as going into a rage for a barbarian. But rather than going, I go into a rage, he says, I would like to rage. Right. Um, and it sort of, it shows some of the humor right. behind the character. And also, I, and that I, for me as well, it, it describes something about the character in the word choice as well. Yeah, it's not, I go into a rage. It's, I would like mm-hmm. to rage. This is something he enjoys doing, and you can tell. Yes. And Travis plays that to the hilt every single time. This is what he wants to be doing pretty much all the time, given the choice. Right. It's it's funny because I always equate it in, a, in both a positive and negative aspect with past stuff that I've seen. Um, I'm a big wrestling fan. And wrestling is all about catchphrases. Mm-hmm. Not all about, but, but, but I mean, it's, it's a core but part it's of the, the characters. Yeah. Uh, the Rock wouldn't be The Rock without his many, many catchphrases. Um, on the other hand, it's one of the reasons I'm, uh, I'm not really big on some anime. Is because everybody has to announce what they're doing in the middle <laughs> of doing it. It takes me completely out. Right. So this falls really right in the middle <laughs> where... With Grog, yes, it, it, it fits his character, and it's natural, and it's not something that everybody does at the same, you know, in at, for their for their own individual stuff. So it yeah, works. It's like, if it's not everybody like, was like doing rage, it, I would like to sneak attack. Right. Okay. If everybody was doing it, it would really be grating. But just with Grog doing it, it makes sense, and it's funny. Um, so the ogre continues. So after he kills the goblin, the ogre rushes out. Um, the party starts to see that the ogres and goblins are running in desperation, not uh, not out of aggression. Mm-hmm. They're trying to escape from something, and they just happen to be running into dwarves and them in the process. Um, they kill the ogre, or Vax kills the ogre. There's still a few goblins left alive. Keyleth seals the uh, tunnel with a wall of stone. <laughs> Um, and, you know, starts interrogating one of the guards, like, what's coming? And they respond, uh, an abomination. Something is making something down there. Um, <clears throat> something, and that something starts <clears throat> banging on the wall. Um, as they, as it starts to crack through the wall of stone, the party sort of writes themselves and prepares to fight whatever's coming next. And this is a great um, and, tension moment, honestly, because, you know, if, yeah. you, if you think about this from like a, a, a television or film perspective, you know, you've got the you've got the local who gives the sort of 
obscure hint something is down there you know and and so that fear of the unknown starts to be in injected into the scene and then you know as a reaction keyleth has blocked off this uh you know entrance to the the localized area and the the impact starts to resonate from behind it something that we still don't know about is coming through you know and you can just feel that sort of tension and stakes ratcheting up and ratcheting up as the description and the preparation for this obvious next stage of combat is going to come through yep and uh matt takes his time describing the uh the events you know intentionally building up that tension giving it a very you know uh shining uh jacks coming through the door Mm -hmm. now feel Mm -hmm. you know that you get the first you get the sound you just get the visceral then you get the cracks and pieces start falling apart and then eventually it breaks through and they see this oversized naga-like creature with six different heads stitched onto its body it's this undead abomination thing breaks through the wall and the party just unloads on it they have scorching rays blazing bowstring uh grog throwing his axe Mm -hmm. uh um uh vax throwing his daggers i think yeah priester um the nag the the naga rushes in attacking keyleth and tiberius uh it poisons keyleth um uh Tiberius, uh, you know, uh, sort of taking a hit but standing firm and showing a little bit more backbone than we've really than, than we've uh, than we typically expect from a spellcaster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we know he has this sort of stubborn hard headedness that we've seen previously, but this time we really see it when he takes a hit that causes Keyleth, the other spellcaster, to double over in pain. But he just sort of stands firm and snorts out fire, which is. A really good character. Yeah. No, it is. Him, where it's this is the first time we see him as something more than just the bumbling aristocrat. Mm-hmm. Um, we see a little bit more of that fire in him. Yep. Literally. Yep. Um, and and the use of that fire, like the 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 the, the, the non combat use of the fire snoring out of his nose, is something that's actually used a lot in anime. It's where when you want to when you want to showcase a fact that doesn't need to be stated going realism and like like sort of uh, making making a making a literary statement into a real statement mm-hmm. um you know there's a fire inside that one literally showing fire right. um uh, is a is a very animated thing to do yeah. and um i feel like the, the visual representation of that very well very well done yeah um uh there's Vax comes no now Vax throws his daggers because the Naga went earlier he didn't hold an action um hits the Naga the Naga starts to come apart uh Keyleth blows it away with Thunder Wave um and then turns into an eagle and bolts um Scanlan inspires himself and lightning bolts the Naga and I believe this is the lightning bolt from the crotch isn't it? Uh, it's actually not described no, that way. No, the lightning bolt from the crotch doesn't come until much later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, it doesn't? Okay. I, I can't I can remember when that happens. So this is just a normal lightning right. bolt. Um, oh no, this is the torturous lightning yes. bolt. This is the one that just sort of rips mm-hmm. through the entirety of the Naga. Yep. Um, and then burns an S in the chest. <laughs> um, 
And so the dwarf, uh, one of the dwarf guards congratulates Scanlan for getting the kill. And the episode ends with Scanlan going, just promise me that you'll tell Pike about this because it was really yes. cool. <laughs> Noting that Pike has been asleep this entire right. time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the end of the episode. So that was the first episode, uh, Arrival in Crackhammer. Uh, they, they, we saw a lot of character moments, a lot of character building, which I feel is important for an episode yes, one. Yes, very much. Um, we we sort of we we now have a rough estimate of what types of people these mm-hmm. are, and how they solve problems, and how they deal with one another and other people in society. Overall, I think a pretty good starting episode. What do you guys think? Yeah, no. As far as the the initial foray into this new thing that that the group and the production team were were putting forward. It really, honestly, went as well as could be expected. I think. Yeah, absolutely. It. It's funny because um, uh, Matt always talks about how he didn't change anything when he went from when they went from streaming or not streaming to streaming, and when you see this, except going from fifth, huh? Except for going from fifth, except- in terms of how he told the story. Um, which either, that means that either some things came into play unconsciously or he already told things in a very cinematic episodic way because this episode or this episode is built like an episode. It, 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 it has the early character stuff. Um, it has, you know, getting into the action scene at the end that slowly escalates and presents the the Naga as an example of what the greater threat is going to be and is the perfect sort of um, anticipatory sort of uh, almost stinger. Not qu- It's not quite a stinger, but uh, mm-hmm. a teaser of what's to, what's to come. So... Well, um, I... I, I... I know that I have always GM'd in a very cinematic style. Um, so I, I don't find it difficult to, to imagine that, yes, he, you know... I mean, obviously, he added introductions at the very beginning mm-hmm. to catch the, the viewership up on what's happening. That is obviously something that was added in. But I don't find it very difficult to believe that, yeah, he probably, uh, you know, in his home game, did tell a very cinematic type of story it's just uh, um, more the structure and like knowing exactly where to end and things like that uh, granted they've always talked about how when they weren't before the stream days they would only meet like once every month but they would do it for like eight hours straight so yeah. by necessity there's some things that are changing <clears throat> but I really did like and and it, it's 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 a great way to introduce um, uh, uh, viewers to these to these characters to do this in a very standard sort of story arc, which I'm sure, as we all know, can be tricky to do when you are relying on um, when you're relying in a large part on your players and and how they interact. Yeah. So he did a very good job of. Of creating that that storyline bell that 
you know, that we know. But I've found in my own experience that, honestly, good players tend to gravitate towards that. Because when you, when you have an activity that is basically recreational storytelling, the type of people that enjoy that are the type of people that enjoy stories. And, and stories are a language. They're, there's a, a recognizable pattern to most of the ones that we encounter and the ones that we as a society collectively value. And that's why when you watch something or you read something or even when you're improving something with a bunch of friends and a handful of dice, if you know stories, you're going to fall into that familiar rhythm of, you know, establishing the setting, the the stakes rise you know i mean mm-hmm. the number of game sessions that i've either run or played in that end on a cliffhanger just because you end on a cliffhanger man right you know uh, it's 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 this this c- sort of communally accepted so- structural language that we're all comfortable with which gives us a good context to then be creative play with the rules try and subvert certain themes or uh, situations that the characters are being confronted with, you know, and it's it's that that balance of you know you've got your you've got your DM, you've got your players, but you're all kind of coalescing around this nugget of narrative that everybody's involved in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, although you know, I do occasionally have players that try to get an extra three sentences out after the cliffhanger. Uh, yeah, that happens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Two of them are in the room. Yes, this is true. <laughs> we might be. Um, I do not deny. But yeah, this. no, I, I, I think it. I think it is a. Um, I think you know very well structured narratively, and I look forward to seeing if the rest of the episodes are so well structured. Um, especially that episode where they just did a Dance Dance Revolution for for. Yeah, hours. that's gonna be that's gonna uh, be a fun one to analyze. Yep. Um, so, I uh, do we have any final remarks? Um, as I've as I've said to the audience, you know, we're sort of building the bridges. We're walking over it. So, uh, do you guys, the two of you, have anything you want to add on here at the end? Um, I would honestly, the main thing that I would love is anybody who listens, send us feedback. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the the future episodes of this won't be quite as long. Uh, we did go a little bit long on the character intros there at the beginning, but we're not going to be doing those again. So uh, these will be a little bit shorter. We're looking for between an hour and an hour and a half. Um, I think this one goes a little bit over that just by a few minutes. But yeah, uh, if you enjoyed what you heard, please give us some feedback anywhere you want to give it to us. Uh, we produce a wide variety of content every day of the week, and you can find this on our on you know on the Podbean website that you're listening to now uh, from, or from iTunes if you're listening on there. Um, you can also get a hold of us via 411mania.com, where these are going to be posted up. Um, uh, uh, on which you know I write these columns and Jeremy edits. Um, uh, so you leave a comment there if you have suggestions on what you'd like to hear going forward. You can also find all three of us on Twitter. I'm at John A. Bates on Twitter. Uh, Jack is uh, Alt F4 Gamers. Is it Gamers with S, an S or just with Gamers? an S? Hmm? <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I am J. Thomas Four One One Mania. There it is. Uh, so yeah, you can find all of us on Twitter if you want to give us feedback. That way, we appreciate it as yep. well. 
Uh, also, if you go to our website at FinalShowFilms.com, there's a contact us button. Uh, there's a contact us page there. You can shoot us an email uh, with any uh, inf- any suggestions or comments you'd like to give. Um, in addition to all that, if you'd like to support us financially, you can do so on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fsfilms. Like I said, we produce a wide variety of content every day of the week, and this just adds to the pile. So uh, uh, those of us, those of you that support us on Patreon, we appreciate all of you, especially our $25 supporters, Chris Comfort and Antitonic, without whom we wouldn't be able to do quite as much stuff that we as we do now. Um, but, you know, uh, our next reward tier on Patreon is $100 a month. Uh, if we can get a consistent $100 a month, we'll be able to separate our podcasts out into individual feeds. Uh, so we'll have our actual plays in a feed, our The Nat 20 Review in a feed, this in its own feed, um, and then, of course, the aggregate feed that it's currently in. So uh, we appreciate all that. If you want to do a one-time donation, you can do so on our website at financialfilms.com. Uh, there's a PayPal donate now button, and please... Uh, as 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 a way of thanking Four One Mania for hosting us, uh, for for letting us put articles up there and 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 showing us to their audience, please go check out their website. They do entertainment st- entertainment columns and articles and videos on uh, uh, wrestling, MMA, gaming, uh, film and television, and uh, music. And, am I missing anything? And music, and music, music. Of course, music. Also, music. So, um, so yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Say bye, bye. everybody. See ya.